Good morning. I get to read from God's word this morning, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. In Matthew's gospel, we're in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. In, in Matthew's gospel, we'll, we'll hear um, that wonderful prophecy of Isaiah um, repeated with respect to our Savior and King Jesus. But, but before we get to that, let me just um, do what I've been doing the last couple, three weeks, I think, and that is to um, just remind us where we've been in Matthew's gospel. Matthew is presenting to us Christ as king. Uh, he is presenting to us um, Jesus, so that we might understand that our King um, has come out of eternity. He is God, the eternal Son. He's come out of eternity into time, into humanity, born to live among people like us. And, and Matthew reminded us in, in chapter 1 of his gospel that his very name declares his mission, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And what Matthew has told us in, in his opening chapter, um, he now illustrates for us in chapters 8 and 9. The king has come uh, to save his people out of their sins. And as familiar as we are with that truth, that wonderful truth, let me just encourage us to think of the implications of that simple truth in light of the gospel that we're meant to believe ourselves and in the light of the gospel we're, we're meant to proclaim rightly to others. Jesus did not come merely to save his people from hell. To believe so is to embrace a half gospel, in other words, a false gospel, although it is a prevailing false gospel in, in our day. Jesus did not come merely to save his people from hell, plus their really big sins. I mean the big ones. 
So, so that we church people, I mean, who but the elect of God are in church uh, on a hot July Sunday, right? So that we church people now appear cleaner than, than, than the really dirty people who don't go to church. To believe that, again, is, is to believe um, a, a partial gospel, in other words, a false gospel. The gospel is better news than that. King Jesus has come to save his people from sin's curse in all of its aspects, every last bit of it. In fact, John the Apostle says in in, in his first epistle, um, he's come to destroy the works of the devil. Even the presence of so-called small sins that prevent his people from serving him as we ought. And and so Matthew has been showing us, in particular, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that? The Sermon on the Mount. He's been showing us that Jesus has the authority to command your full obedience. There is no higher authority than the authority of King Jesus. And with his authority, he commands my obedience to him. And the Sermon on the Mount gave us a taste of what full obedience looks like. And all of us going through that felt lacking, didn't we? Didn't we? If you don't answer, I don't move on. (laughs) Those of you who are new here need to know that. There's a way this can go down. Um, I mean, surely... Is there anyone who went through that, that all of that time we were in the Sermon on the Mount and you thought, yeah, that pretty much describes my life. I think, I think I got it. No, of course not. We are works in progress. And so we need this reminder that the king who has all authority to command obedience has great compassion to deliver you from all of the sin that prevents your obedience. Mine too. And it's the authority of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus for his own that is illustrated for us now in these miracles that we read of in Matthew 8. And so now let's look at the third miracle, the third healing miracle that we've seen thus far in Matthew 8. Beginning with verse 14, it says, When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began waiting on him. Now when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were ill, in order to fulfill which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Remember, Matthew's gospel is not so much a chronology um, as it is a biography of the king as, as he inaugurates his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And so Matthew has very selectively, actually the Holy Spirit through Matthew has very selectively placed these three healing miracles at this place in his gospel, um, right after the Sermon on the Mount, 
to show the king's sufficiency for all that he's come to do. He's come to save his people out of their sins. Every last trace of sin's curse around them and certainly every last trace of sin within them. Who is Jesus? He's the the all-sufficient king who will actually enable his people to live the life he calls them to live in the Sermon on the Mount. So so that you and I are, are not just people who read the Sermon on the Mount and think, boy, wouldn't that be amazing if that were so. That this is a work that Jesus is doing in you. And, 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 there's a, and you wince a bit when you read that sermon because you realize, my goodness, he's chipping off from me all the stuff that doesn't look like Jesus. And there's a lot there for sure. In Matthew 8, we, we read of these literal physical healings. We don't want to miss that. Don't, don't miss the king's authority to heal uh, his power over disease and death itself. If you've got the, um, the children's listening guide, if they're interviewed in the, in the first service, your parents required you to come to the early service, um, that's in your listening guide. Don't miss that. But, but these healing miracles um, serve a dual purpose. Physical healing miracles picture for us Christ's power to heal spiritual sickness. What do I mean by that? Jesus, with all authority, has healed for his people the leprosy of our sin, that that, that sin that we're born with and begins to manifest itself over time. So what what does that look like? Well, it looks like that that leper we read about in verses 1 through 4. What about the next verses? Jesus, with divine compassion, hears our cries for healing, even our cries on behalf of others. What does that look like? Well, it looks looks a lot like that Gentile, that centurion, who cried out to Jesus for his beloved servant. And, And who else did the Jews of the first century see as somehow less than? I mean, lepers were certainly less than. Uh, Gentiles were certainly less than. Um, Well, notice in verse 14, also women. Also women. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. John MacArthur, in, in his commentary on Matthew, writes this. He says, the first thing some Jewish men did every morning was pray Lord, I thank thee that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. I mean, that, that was the mindset of first century Judaism. And, and, it, and, it, and it's, it makes you cringe a bit when you hear that. But, but that was the, the prevailing thought of the day. And, and I want us to just notice that this is not Jesus' mindset at all. Our triune God created men and women equal yet distinct in their roles, distinct in their physiology. And so the solution to um, what's wrong here in Jewish culture is not to just erase manhood, which is the extreme that our culture has, has tried to do. Um, this isn't even part of the sermon, by the way. Just, just wait. Um, but, but we don't, don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss it here in the Bible. 
Jesus has come to restore what the curse of sin has ruined, including the wrong mindset about the worth and roles of men and women, both image bearers of God. Well, what is the the point of the passage then, if that's not the main point? Well, um, here's something that I, I got stuck on. It seems jarring to me that this miracle in verses 14 and 15 seems really minor compared to the other ones we've seen so far. In fact, it will seem minor even when set against the the miracles that we we will read as we go on in chapter 8 and 9. Isn't a fever a comparatively minor thing? And yes, Luke in his gospel, Luke the doctor, he, he calls it a high fever, and so, so it's, it's significant in that sense. Um, but but a, a fever still seems awfully insignificant to, say, leprosy or, or having a servant who is, who is sick unto death, about to die. And you've got to just ask yourself, why is there a seemingly insignificant healing deliberately placed here as it is in Matthew's gospel? And I really believe the answer is in verse 15. It says he, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began waiting on Jesus. This fever has left this woman bedridden, incapacitated, unable to serve as she once did, unable to serve as she then is enabled to do once she is healed. And I I want us to just focus on her as a person, and then we're just going to focus on the problem she has, and and then just the purpose of Jesus healing her. Who is she as a person? Well, the, the first thing that jumped out at you is, is you thought, well, my goodness, I didn't realize Peter was married. That's interesting. And maybe you're still stuck on that, trying to noodle that one through. Well, it turns out Peter was married. You read in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the, uh, in 1 Corinthians, that you know, his wife uh, accompanied him apparently in, in gospel labors. But here is this, this woman who, who, who surely was a great comfort to her daughter, Peter's wife, she, she was probably a blessing to uh, Peter's brother, Andrew, who also lived in this house. In fact, according to Mark's gospel, this is the house of, of Simon, Peter, and Andrew. And, and they apparently kept this home, even though the, the brothers were from nearby Bethsaida, um, so that they'd have a place to stay during Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Capernaum was, was headquarters, if you will, for Jesus' ministry in Galilee, up, up in, in northern Israel. It's very possible that Jesus stayed in this home. And my point in all of this is not so that you would grab your tablets and look all this stuff up. Um, but if you must, you know, that's fine. Um, here is a woman in the house of Jesus' own followers, a woman who normally would serve Jesus and his followers. Uh, but she cannot do so now because she has a fever. That's the problem. 
And, and what a picture this is of, of those who are in the household of God uh, but are hindered in their service because of some incapacitating spiritual illness. That's the problem. In the church, there are those who are saved, healed from the leprosy that separates us from God and his people, brought into the household of Jesus' people, if you will, by repentance and faith in Christ. And yet along the way, doesn't it seem to you that in this journey of following Jesus, it's possible to become bedridden with some spiritual fever. What do I mean by that? An infection has set in, imperceptible at first, and it eventually renders you unable to live the way our king calls his people to live. You're, you're unable to serve him the way your king calls you to serve him. I forgot to mention at the onset that this is one that gets personal. This woman is bedridden. She's incapacitated from her serving and even her normal living among the other followers of Jesus. And, and I wonder... I wonder if, if there are some among God's people here today who, who know this by experience, hindered in some way by a, by a fever, by, a, by, by a, a sin that maybe even is hidden to others, but the effects of it are there. And it's not the big stuff, you know, the stuff you read about in the newspapers. It's just a fever. Maybe you suffer within yourself a fever of, of bitterness. Some of you perhaps suffer a fever of, of anxiety, fear. I mean, the world, after all, is falling apart. Have you noticed that? Maybe it's the fever of selfishness. Maybe it's the fever of pride. And it seems insignificant. I mean, you're in the household of God's people. It's just a fever. But listen, spiritual fevers prevent Christians from serving the king and others as he desires. That's the issue. And again, I wonder if there are any here this day who, who might have to just say, you know, in all honesty, it's been a long time since you've served your king as you once did. There's, there's something that just prevents you from serving him and his people as you, as you know you ought. And because a fever consumes you, think of how this happens in your body physically. When you're sick with a fever, that's pretty much all you can think about. 
And when you're spiritually feverished, it likewise consumes you. You become self-focused, not other-focused. Maybe it's the virus of disappointment. I mean, you're just sort of underwhelmed with the life your king has given you to live. You'd thought it'd be different, certainly by now. Maybe it's the fever of shame. I mean, what a high fever that can be. And your shame isolates you. And you agree with your own conscience as measure of yourself, but the thing of it is, is you've not brought it to Christ. The king who went to that cross at Calvary and actually died to bear your shame. And what is needed for you today is not a lecture. Don't think that. What is needed for you today is a touch from the king who heals. You need a compassionate touch from your king to restore you. And to to get you out of neutral, so to speak, and get you back up serving him and his people as he's created you to do. Because the thing of it is, friends, is God has us here to reach the cities of Hayden and Coeur d'Alene and even way up there in like Spirit Lake and stuff, like the third world places. Um <laughs> The king has come to save his people from their sins. That means his people need to hear their king has come. That means the spiritually feverish need to get out of bed. And so we need a compassionate touch from our king. Are you hearing this? That's the purpose of this healing not just to show us that Jesus has all authority over physical sickness, physical disease, even death itself. Of course he does. Of course he does. And yet there is a spiritual application here that, that must be why this is placed where it is in Matthew's gospel. In one of his sermons on this passage, uh, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, one symptom of a fever is that a man loses appetite for that which would be good for him. How interesting. There's a warning sign that a a fever is setting in. You, You used to have a private appetite for the word of God. Not so much anymore. You used to have a genuine appetite for fellowship with God's people. Not so much anymore. Worship used to be from the heart. Remember when you could worship with God's people in song and not be preoccupied with whether or not you liked that song? Not be preoccupied with whether or not the rhythm was just so, the way you prefer it? Sorry, this isn't practical. You used to never want to miss communion, the Lord's table, 
And yet now those things are, are not nearly as appetizing to you as they once were. Maybe they're neglected entirely. And the fever is so high, it, just, it doesn't even really register as a thing. And yet it's a thing. Some of you, dear ones, are content to stay home and be spiritual content consumers rather than active participants in the body of Christ. And you're spiritually bedridden. And my heart for you this morning is that you're in need of healing. There's no such thing as virtual church any more than there's such a thing as virtual salvation. And please know, I'm not referring to those of you listening in just now. And you are bedridden, and you're homebound. And what I want to say to you this morning on behalf of everybody physically here is we love you, and we care about you, and we understand that. That's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person who figures their Christianity is primarily listening to podcasts and sermons on YouTube. The means of grace are not embraced when you've got a spiritual fever. And and when this hunger for Christ is is doled by sin, uh, that lack of spiritual nourishment shows up in our attitude. And, and, And Luke did call this a high fever. You still with me? Luke did call this a high fever, and so I don't, I don't want to minimize it as if it's some sort of... Um, last week, somebody was joking with me about the... What do you ladies call it? A man cold? A man... <laughs> See, that's a thing. But, brothers, you don't know that they have this whole other vocabulary for when you get sick. Let's, let's not minimize it too much. Nor ought we minimize spiritual fevers too much. Christian, listen, that that constant exposure of yours to that stuff on the Internet that is hidden from others, it's hidden from your spouse, it's hidden from your children, um, that's not hidden from God. And and what you need this morning, Christian, is not not some kind of lecture. You You need the king's compassion to be brought to bear on that fever. You are bedridden. You you are spiritually incapacitated because you're not able to serve your king as you ought. You'll need grace from your king. He has the authority to heal. He's willing. We read that somewhere. Are you? Willing to go to him with that? Maybe, Christian, it's that lingering discontent with your circumstances. I fear that one of the primary vibes of Christians in our community um, is that we're all just mostly ticked off about stuff. And we're really mad because the world has moved all of our furniture around. It used to be this way, now it's that way, and we don't like it. 
And when discontent becomes feverish, you're always trying to find the next thing that satisfies. I mean, you've got that, that insistence that somehow you deserve a, a better, a different life than what God has ordained for you. And, and let me just say, it, 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 it's time to wake up from that and seek his touch because he's compassionate to heal that if, if you'll bring it to him. What a sad thing it is to be among the privileged ones, those with whom King Jesus has chosen to dwell, called to serve his kingdom purposes and yet to be rendered unable to fully enjoy that spiritual life, to be incapable of fulfilling the high purpose our king has for us. And fevers take many forms, don't they? I know you want me to move on. Maybe some of you are, are just sick with worry. I mean, you're worried about stuff that already happened and cannot be changed. Maybe some of you have lost today. There's no joy in today, and you can't really live and love in the present because you're worried about what might happen in the future. You've forgotten the king who actually reigns over all things and his goodness. And the thing of it is, is it doesn't just affect you and me as personal, you know, personally when we have a fever. It, it affects our witness in the community. I, I know some church members get bedridden with, with the, the fever of a critical spirit. So let me just describe it to you since nobody can relate to this. You know, you're, you're, you're unable to serve with others joyfully because they don't, they don't do it the way you do it, and you do it the right way. And you're, you're unable to receive from others because you're too busy noting and keeping a record of everything that's wrong with other people and the church. This is why you pray for the second service people, right? <laughs> and that fever of a critical spirit, that fever of discontent taints the reputation of Christ in the community. Spiritual fevers keep the king's people from serving as salt and light in their community. Oh, but, but they're in the household of God, the feverish. They're among the Jesus people, not unsaved, not lepers in that sense. Being sanctified, hoping in God's heaven, all of that, and yet... Among God's people, there are these, these fevers. And yet, uh, so often we're inclined to say, um, it's just a fever. So you go to church, and, and you go to your small group, and, and you drag that addiction with you. It's a hidden infection. And, and, and you bring that self-focused thought life with you. The unseen virus, right? Just a fever. 
Not that big a deal. Do you see why we need this reminder of why Jesus came? Do you see why we keep going back to Matthew 121? Because it is the lead graph, <laughs> the nut graph. <laughs> my, my old journalism year is coming back. It, it's the truth you're meant to keep coming back to so you get a sense of why stuff is going on. Jesus has come to rid you and me of every trace of sin's curse. Leprosy, for sure. But even the fevers, even the fevers. Notice the result of this healing, and I, and I think we're making great progress now. Still in verse 15, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began waiting on him. And I got stuck on that too. Aren't you glad? <laughs> what a purposeful healing this is. It's not healing for the sake of healing. By this point in Matthew's gospel, it's not even healing for the sake of, of testifying of Jesus' authority to kill off fevers. We know that. What a miracle this is, though. The fever didn't gradually diminish. She didn't just sort of slowly get better the way we often just kind of slowly get better. Peter's mother-in-law is instantly healed and energized to serve. She got up. And she got busy doing the thing that Jesus had, Jesus' presence had, had put in front of her to do. In fact, the Greek word that's rendered waiting, you know, waiting on him, diakoneo, um, to serve, to minister. We get the English word deacon from that. Deacon is actually a made-up word from, from the Greek to, to serve, to minister. She began serving by doing what? Well, she, she, makes, she makes everybody lunch, apparently. She, she remains who she is. She doesn't become somebody else. It's just that she remains who she is without sickness. And so, and, and so she's able to serve the Lord in a manner in which he's enabled her and positioned her in her context to serve. So here's where I'm going with this. Are you still listening? Christ heals his people that they may serve him by doing what he's put in front of them to do. See how complex this is? I mean, you really got to chart this thing out, don't you? This is what our biblical counseling ministry here at Hayden Bible Church is all about, by the way. Um, running to Jesus for healing so that men and women, image bearers both, can get up out of bed spiritually and get back to serving the king and serving his people and reaching the community as we've been created to do. It's not counseling for the sake of counseling. It's not just chatting about how hard it is to live in a fallen world just for the sake of chatting about it. It's healing. Real life change. Spiritual, spiritually enabled life change for the purpose of serving and representing our king. Let me give you an example from scripture. Romans 12 says this. And I'm reading this in the New King James because um, 
because I want to. How's that? Um, No, Paul says this, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. See, when, when Jesus heals the spiritual fevers among his people, we don't all get up and do the same stuff. We don't need to come up with some new thing to do. This dear lady simply makes lunch on a Saturday afternoon. How how do I know that? Because in Mark's gospel, he makes plain to us that this all happened on the Sabbath. Jesus had already cast out a demon from a possessed man who, who was in the synagogue at Capernaum. And, and, and you got to think to yourself, how, how insignificant this seems in light of Jesus healing a guy whose demon went to church with him. I mean, this, this lady just has a fever. But let me ask you this. Do you think her experience with Jesus was insignificant to her? No. And just look how she responds. She does the next, she, she does the first obvious thing to do in light of the circumstances Jesus has placed her in. Here, here, here's why I'm stressing that. Young people, listen, if you um, have, have been brought by God's grace out of a spiritual fever, um, he has healed you of that, you, you, you don't have to run off to seminary. Now, if God leads you to do that, do that. If it would be disobedience to not do that. But we don't have to do that. Um, just do what your king puts in front of you to do for him, given the circumstances he's placed you in. You have a family member who needs to know Christ. You, you have classmates who who need to know Jesus. You have, you have other Jesus followers in your life who, who also become feverish every once in a while and need a word of encouragement and a, and, a, and, a, and a point to the king who's compassionate to heal. Your significant li- significance lies in whose you are. There are no insignificant healings. I think that's why this is in Matthew's gospel because there are no insignificant people in God's family and there are no insignificant functions then in God's family. We, we came up with that stuff. Notice the impact this healing along with all of the others in, in Galilee has had. Look at verse 16. When evening came, 
they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This woman being restored to usefulness, serving Jesus, um, serving the company of the king's people, if you will, uh, becomes part of enabling a much larger ministry in Galilee. Others are led to Christ. And her serving him, her serving his people in that house, plays a role in Jesus being able to touch many others. Now that it's evening, says Matthew in verse 16, in other words, the Sabbath has ended. It's now kosher for people to be out and about bringing those in physical need, uh, spiritual need to Jesus, they do so. Mark's gospel says um, with, with hyperbole, the whole city had gathered at the door of this house. I mean, just try to picture that. You need to be saved from the leprosy of sin that separates you from God. Go to Jesus. He's able to save. Do, do, do you long to see a loved one saved like the Gentile centurion longed to have his beloved servant healed. Take your pleas to Jesus. But, but if your, your spiritual ailment is relatively small and, and, and you've been saying to yourself for, for months, if not years, it was just a fever. I don't think anybody else even notices it really. Go to Jesus with that. He's come to rid his world and to rid his people of any trace of sin's curse. And and that's what Matthew's been getting at here, isn't it? Look at at verse 17. We'll we'll end with that because it's the last verse. How about that? Why did Jesus do these things? Healing miracles, large and small and, and all sorts in order to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Matthew cites um, Isaiah 53, 4. Um, but, but if you turn to that verse in your, in your Bible, you'll notice that it's probably worded a bit differently. Why is that? Well, Matthew quotes from the Hebrew rendering of Isaiah 53. Uh, rather from the the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. Um, Remember, Matthew's writing to Jewish Christians in the first century. And and I mention that because that, that verse is there as an anchor to remind us of why Jesus came. Jesus takes away our diseases, our infirmities. And the scripture says there is a day coming. Are you living for that day? There is a day coming when there won't be physical sickness for God's people. There won't be cancer. There won't be infections, if you will. Our king carries away sickness. But but Isaiah 53, that servant song in Isaiah is to do with our king who was pierced for our transgressions, who who was um, bruised for our iniquities. 
who, who came to this world and lived the only perfect life that any human has ever lived. And, and then went to Calvary's cross and shed his blood that he might absorb in himself the hell of God's wrath that his sinful people deserve. And he rose again. Do you believe this? He rose again in the power of an endless life. And it is your privilege, sinner, to turn to this king. Remember, the, 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 the gate to the kingdom is narrow. It's as narrow as the cross of Jesus. And the good news, the gospel for those in the kingdom is that even these things going on in our lives that we brought in through the door with us today, that we would say within ourselves, well, you know, it's, it's just a fever. It's not like it's a leprosy. Your, your king has come to heal that too. Forgive it for sure, but get rid of it. Be sure of that. He who began a good work in you will The, the answer apparently is <laughs> he who began a good work on you will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The, the writer of Hebrews glories in this promise. Listen to Hebrews 7.25 and then I'll, I'll stop. Therefore he, our king, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The old King James has, has a wonderful rendering of this because it, it, it says he's able to save to the uttermost, meaning what? Um, he has authority and compassion to make your salvation complete because he didn't just come to save you from hell and he didn't just come to save you from hell and the really big sins. He came to destroy the works of the devil. There's a day coming when there will be no works of the devil evident in God's world. And listen, there will be no works of the devil evident in God's people. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to be more and more mindful of, of the ailments that we tend to shrug off as no big deal, maybe just private to us, we think. Lord, they are actual hindrances to us functioning according to your good design for your people. Lord, that they, they dim the light of our witness in our community. They, they, they hinder uh, your gospel work among us in your church. And Lord, I thank you for reminding us that you care and you have not only the authority to command our obedience, but, but the compassion to enable it. And so, Lord, I just pray that by your spirit, would you move us, any among us so feverish to turn to you? And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.